Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Hey, happy Pentecost Sunday. How exciting is that? I know it's one of those things we don't really talk about till it's here, um, but we're going to just discuss the, the realities of Pentecost Sunday this morning. But it is going to be through the lens of our new series uh, called The Creeds. Um, and so you have the great privilege this morning of first allowing me to establish what this series is about uh, and then going into um, just the, the power and the importance of Pentecost Sunday. Um, last weekend, we had our Sabbath as a church. Um, I hope each and every one of you took the Sunday just to spend time with your family and to rest and to pray and to worship together and just allow the Holy Spirit uh, to revitalize and rejuvenate you. Uh, it has been a long, soon 18 months of this COVID pandemic. And we know in moments like that, when we come together as a church and we Sabbath, uh, that we are not just simply going, hey, whatever, God, we'll just take a day off. We're really saying we honor that in this season, rest is required for us to sustain the good mission, the commission that Christ has given us. Uh, and to be found in complete balance the way and rhythm that God intended us to operate. And so I hope you, Emma and I and the kids had a wonderful time, didn't we, babe? It's difficult when you got your mask on. People don't know, hey, if you're happy or sad. You know, sometimes I say things from stage and there's people like, oh, man, you know, Pastor Ben is just so mean to Pastor Emma. And they, 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 the camera will inevitably zoom to Pastor Emma, right? And she's got a mask on. And she's got these stunning eyes, but they also look like they're going to burn a hole straight through you if they're not accompanied with the beautiful smile that she has. Uh, but it's funny, Pastor Emma and I, we have a great relationship. If any of you are stressed out there, honestly, the only people that are ever stressed are the single men out there. And they always say, well, I'll never talk to my wife like that. And I was like, of course you can't. <laughs> uh, fun. Uh, I'll get a whole bunch of emails about that one. Remember, guys, burn our email. Complaints at avantlifechurch.com. Send it straight there. It'll be great. Hey, we're going to start. We're going to get into this. Um, I'm excited. You know, the concept of, of a creed is a guiding principle. Uh, and the Bible uses this language, creed, not just in relation to what we're discussing today, but when it discusses or what it, it, it uh, describes people of different creeds different tribes, different tongues. And so when we say that, that different creeds and different tongues will submit to the authority of Christ, I love the thought because sometimes we don't think about it, but what the Bible is indicating and describing to us is that Christ has the paramount authority, that ideologies, different guiding principles at the end of the day are in submission to him. Uh, and sometimes we can get caught up in this modern world, right, uh, where Christianity is not really favorable on the mindset of many people. And that has to do with a lot of misconceptions and the hostility towards the church is not new, uh, but it is taking on a, 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 a very clear and distinct uh, line in the sand moment uh, in the world that we live in the West. This is not new to us, uh, but it is important for us to understand that we have a creed as believers in Jesus, and that the church, even in its earliest stages, were relying on creeds to keep us unified under the pure gospel of Christ and not being led astray. Uh, I often find myself, 
you know, taking for granted that we have the Bible in front of us. Right now, you could just go on your iPhone, go to, go to the Bible app, look up any one of the translations and find any one of the scriptures and have immediate access. And that is a privilege of the 21st century. You know, that wasn't something you could do 20 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. And the reason it couldn't happen 2,000 years ago, as the canon as we know it today, the Protestant canon didn't exist. And so what the church required of its leaders was the ability to come together and create a uniformed, united uh, creed that we could stand upon, that, that the average believer could use as a pillar and as a guiding flame in a world that was not that different ideologically to the world that we live in today. See, things have changed. Technology has changed. Accessibility, you know, the mindset around things being instant has changed. But in relation to, you know, people taking different uh, scriptures and, and then turning them into what that best suits them or even just completely tearing them apart um, and coming up with a, a new teaching, uh, that wasn't new then and it's not new now. It's just something that tends to happen with humans, right? And the reason for that is, and, and, and we would all suffer from this, is that we have this thing called selfishness and we have this thing called greed and we have this thing called self-motivation, our own agenda, and, and passively in our life we can take things that were meant to be very pure in thread and we can bend them almost to breaking point to best suit our narrative. But the cool thing about creeds and what we're going to learn about over the next few weeks is that they are designed to remove the self out of something and keep Jesus at the center of it. And so for most of you, if you know any, you know any form of creed, it's going to be the Nicene Creed. It's the most famous, it's the most influential creed uh, in the history of church. Um, and a lot of this is because it settled the question of how Christians worship one God in three persons. That's what the Nicene Creed was uh, designed to do. It's the first creed that had complete unification under known church leaders at the time. They all agreed upon it. Universal authority in the church was something that had not been proved achievable up to this point. And I love that thought because we're not talking about like a thousand years after Christ. We're talking like, like the third century, right? So, and fourth century. We're talking about not that very long since the church was established. I, I know it's still a couple of hundred years, uh, but you get what I'm saying. And the statement... More specifically in the, uh, the, the Nicene Creed was to sort of shore up and remove any confusion that was in the Apostles' Creed, which was its predecessor. And so if we're going we're gonna to do a bit of history here, because I love history, and history is going to actually set a little bit of a foundation in your heart on that this is not just like a, a nice thing. This actually took place. Men and women, believers in Christ, came together over 1,700 years ago and discussed the same things that we're trying to discuss today. But what I think is amazing is they came up with something that was inspired by the Holy Spirit called the Nicene Creed, and it was used and has been used to keep so many believers in line with what Jesus said was truth and not what man and our philosophies would try to pollute it with. And so the Nicene Creed was a product of um, two councils coming together at different times, one in Nicaea, which is present-day Turkey, uh, in a city called Iznik, 
You can turn to your friend or type in ISNIC, try to spell it, see if you get it right. Don't Google it. I know there's a whole bunch of cheaters out there who just want to pretend that they're really smart, so they Google it first. And then they put it in there, and then they, they celebrate in their fakeness. But anyway, I hope that's not you. We've got a creed to help. That was uh, 325 AD that they came together. And then uh, just over 50 years later, in Constantinople, which is now present-day Istanbul, Turkey, um, there was a second council that discussed the same matter. And then for between those times, for about 100 years, there was a debate over the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's one of those things that has really set Christianity apart from any other religion or belief, is that the way we comprehend our God in a self-sustaining, uh, unified relationship is fundamental to how we operate as believers. Um, and, and so we need to know this. A lot of you, and I, I say this, don't have a good enough grasp on the, the triune Godhead, and we're going to spend the whole Creed series helping unlock that for you and equip you with understanding around this, not in super hard terms where you're like, oh man, if I was to say that word, no one knows what I'm talking about, let alone myself. You won't need to Google what we're telling you in relation to the meaning. It'll make sense to you. Now, you can go search it in Scripture. It's only going to fortify in your heart the truth of the gospel. Um, but this is all unraveling around the reunion unification of the Roman Empire under Constantine. Now, uh, Constantine has like a, an infamous role to play in Christianity. Sometimes we overemphasize his, his role, but essentially he unifies Rome after a, a period of division as an empire. And one of his great battles, he, he believes that he encountered God, a God blessed the Christian God, uh, the way he put it, blessed his armies and they won. And he literally, uh, you know, legalized Christianity almost overnight. Um, what, what a lot of people don't understand is when the gospel was being spread through the known world, uh, it happened through multiple different ways. And one of those ways was the Roman military. This is the cool thing, right? Because when you read the, the, the New Testament and the four gospels, you'll notice that there's interactions between Jesus himself and Roman military officials. Uh, I love it. It is, it is the, the greatest known at the time human empire coming against the eternal empire of Christ. And, and we have these interactions and we don't see it until hundreds of years later, these threads of evangelism that the church spun into the, the Roman military, that Roman officers were getting saved and then and then they were actually influencing the, the the their officers above them and what took place was in Constantinople in Constantine's life he's heading towards his battle and there's men in his actual imperial guard that are Christians They've converted. Now, they're, they're probably con like covert converts at the time because it's not the most safest place. But they begin to evangelize and they pray. And this is what Con uh, Constantine is talking about. They pray to the Christian God for help in a battle and the Romans win. Right, And he has this moment that, oh, the Christian God must be real. And so he overnight, and I say overnight, you get, it takes a bit of time, but in, in relation to ancient timing, overnight makes Christianity... Something that's no longer illegal. He ends persecution in 313 AD. This is, this is big. This is something that the, the church has been hoping for. It's been paid for on the backs and the blood of many, many faithful believers. 
He's the emperor who actually convened these, these council, the first council of Nicaea. He's the one's like, hey, all the church, you guys need to get together and you need to talk about this. And then that's about his role. <laughs> Let's not give him too much credit because he does some other stuff that's super weird. So, hey, but shouldn't that encourage us that God can use anyone at any time for the purpose of his kingdom? Uh, and that, you know, as weird as people can get, you know, in right times, right moments, we are all called uh, and have all the opportunity to align with the goodness of God. Uh, and that's what we've seen take place here, and it's powerful. Um, and so these, these leaders of the church, these, you know, and, and it's, it's ecumenical. It's like all the leaders are coming together. It's universal. This is a big deal, right? This is, this is big news. This is like, if you were to think about it, this is like the Avengers of church coming together, right? These are everyone you need to know are coming together to discuss uh, the Sokovia Accords. I'm just kidding. Um, This is the backdrop you need to understand. And there's a reason why these councils have been called, why these leaders have been summoned together. And we know at this moment that the full canon of Scripture hasn't actually come and been established. And there's so many teachings and doctrines floating around and being taught that were not a God leading people astray. Jesus warns of this in his ministry, people feeding them heresy and attempting to corrupt the teachings of Jesus. And one such teaching, and this is the one that really was the catalyst for the Nicene Creed, was uh, Arianism. Now, I'm not talking about like Arianism in the sense of uh, the Aryan race that we see Hitler talk about. This guy, it's based off a guy called Arya, or Arius, sorry. And, and, and the council is summoned to deal with what he was teaching. He was a presbyter out of Alexandria in Egypt, and he was essentially teaching that Jesus was not a part of the Godhead, that he was a celestial servant, to the true God most high, but alone he wasn't almighty transcendent. He wasn't the creator. That was for God the Father. And his reasoning behind this was that Jesus was prone to emotion, while God the Father was always in control of his emotions. Jesus grew and learned, opposed to the Father who never changed. Jesus died which opposed to the Father, who is immortal. Thus, only the Father could be considered uncreated and timeless and self-sufficient. This is interesting because when you first listen to it, it's, it can sort of make human sense, right? If you don't have enough of Scripture in your heart and you haven't been taught enough, this makes sense. Now, in a modern era... This does play out maybe not as aggressively uh, because people aren't arguing if he's the son of God or not on this level. Um, you know, they're not accepting that he's a celestial uh, you know, messenger for you know, God Almighty. But they are saying he's a, he's a good guy. He was a moral teacher, but he's not the son of God. This is the same conversation. The only problem is that ha- that conversation can happen in the world. It just can't happen in his bride. And so these leaders are summons to deal with this guy. And what's interesting is that, that this guy's teachings um, were, were founded in a teacher that had come before him in the prior century called Oregon. And at and, and first you think, oh, well, why would this guy listen to a dude 100 years earlier? Well, this was generally how things happened back then. It took a while 
for things to get transferred and rethought over. So philosophies took centuries to establish. And this is the beginnings of what could have split the church on a path that would have really caused a lot of problems, if you think about it. And so what this council has been summoned to do is essentially intervene before this thing gets too much... Uh, too much esteem, uh, because it really was based around almost a mythology or mythological understanding of how God can operate. It's not a discussion necessarily about Jesus himself, but about the nature of Christ as established in Scripture. Now, his very own bishop, Arius' bishop, Alexander, highly disagreed with him. This is funny. Pointing out that Oregon also said father, just like Arius was, in an eternal, so that, that, that eternal attribute of God. This means two things, and we, it makes logical sense, right? The first is that it's not possible to be a father without having offsprings, right? Just naturally speaking. And that if his name was father, then that, and he's eternal, he was always known as a father, because he's unchanging. See how this bishop is now taking Arius' logic based on this other guy's thinking and started to turn it back through Scripture on him? Well, if that's what you're saying, and he's always unchanging, and yet Jesus, Jesus learned and grew, but God always knew. He was always established as his character. Well, if he's always a father, means he always had a son. Yeah. Right? And this is what the bishop is pushing back on, saying, well, well, if he's had a son and the father's eternal and his name father's been eternal, then the son must be eternal as well. And thus we begin the discussion around the Nicene Creed. It's a, it's a, it's a question of how can we worship Jesus and how do we worship the father How can we have a triune Godhead and still claim to be monotheists, people who worship one true God? And honestly, it's one of those things that confuses many people, especially uh, those of other faiths like, like Muslims. When it comes to this, this is a, a part of trouble of trying to get their, their, their minds around it. it. It's hard for Christians who don't spend enough time studying the word to get their mind around it, let alone someone who doesn't even subscribe to the same faith. And so this is the Nicene Creed. This is what they came up with. I'm going to read it to you. It's powerful. It says this, I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very good of very God, so very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. 
and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. This was then given to the known church. Now, I I didn't include the one in Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church because the creed says Catholic, but back then the Catholic Church is very different to how we know the Catholic Church today. It actually, don't get me wrong, 100% believe that Catholics go to heaven, so I don't have an issue there. Um, But I said apostolic because that's what we are. We're the apostolic church. And so if we're the apostolic church, we would say apostolic. The Catholic church would say the Catholic church. Whatever works, they put them both in there so that, why? There was universal agreement. Isn't that beautiful? It just follows the basic structure of the Apostles' Creed. It just really focuses in on all three members of the Trinity. See, it doesn't, it doesn't go into deep theology in relation to sort of secondary or peripheral uh, issues of unification. It deals with all the major forms of unification, no matter if you're Coptic, Orthodox, Catholic, Apostolic, Protestant, doesn't matter where you sit, Reformed. These are our unifying beliefs. Everyone who is a Christian, no matter your denomination, no matter where you affiliate, we believe these things. Isn't it a powerful thing? So honestly, you could probably just take the Nicene Creed and when someone says, like, what do you believe in? You could probably just put it in modern day terminologies or a shortened, condensed way to help communicate what you believe. I believe that there is one God, creator of heaven and earth, visible and invisible. That Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son, not created, begotten, given, gifted, What for? So that he could pay our ransom. These are things we should know. They should be found in the depths of our hearts and we should meditate on them to keep ourselves focused. Our history as believers is powerful. What I find interesting is that as many other cultures over centuries and millennia have done the church has done the same yet we find ourselves in an interesting period of time where I really sense especially in the west more believers know about what they hope the church will be than they know about what the church has been and where it was birthed right they don't know where it's come from what it's gone through and what its current picture looks like now they're more interested in how to define what it looks like to come Isn't that like, I've been leading for a long time now and Pastor Emma and I always, when we've got to make decisions and we've got to to cast a vision and we we include people in the vision, I kid you not, and you would know this because we all to a degree suffer from this, when we have an opportunity to be creative and design something or study the past, 99.9% of people are going to choose the first thing and not study the past but they were never meant to be done in isolation we're meant to know where we came from like we're still Jenny from the block right right you get what I'm saying like used to have a little but now we have a lot that's that's the church right 
Like we just need to know what the block looked like and where we came from. And it, it is unlike any other culture, it has been documented precisely. Like we don't have to do a lot of work to research our heritage as believers. Outside of picking up the books that people slaved over, invested their life into, many died for. We pick them up on Kindle, often for free. You could read them and be so equipped of where we come from, what we've got through and where we're heading. Because you don't really know where you're heading unless you know where you've come from. And this is what leads us to Pentecost Sunday. See, this is the moment the church is born. See, most Christians, and I, you know, I would say most Christians, and when I talk about it, it's always in a Western context, we go each and every year celebrating Christmas and Easter. Could you imagine a year where we didn't celebrate Christmas or Easter? You would be shattered. Talk about being shook, like no Christmas presents and no Easter eggs, let alone no like actually celebrating what Christ did by arriving and then being resurrected and overcoming death. Like when I look at this, I go, we need, we need to think about what Pentecost Sunday means to us. See, Christmas is the event that we celebrate and it's the birth of Christ. The beginnings of his redemptive ministry here on earth. Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, God's ultimate victory over sin and death. See, if we were not to observe Christmas or Easter anymore, I would say that we would have and we'd begin to have a very limited understanding of our faith. It would only take a few generations for that to be really, really corrupted. Like observing certain moments in our history, Jesus being born and Jesus overcoming sin and death are two of them. These are great and sacred observances that we partake of. But I would, I would suggest, especially as a Pentecostal church, that Pentecost Sunday should be just as important to us. Imagine going an entire year without hearing Hark the Heralds. Or Christ the Lord has risen today. Or he is risen. He's risen indeed. Imagine we weren't making these pronouncements of resurrection each and every year. A lot of this comes out of the fact that I think most of us like to look at our faith as an observer and we're going we're gonna to deal with what Pentecost does in light of Christmas and Easter, that all three of them actually work in a very beautiful unison together. So we're talking about Pentecost Sunday. It's rooted. It is rooted in the, the, the book of Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is where the church is born. The Holy Spirit lights the flame. This is a beautiful moment. It's powerful. You would have heard it if you spent a lot of time in church. You would have heard this story. We're going to read it this morning. It's important. We might, yeah, I don't know where the timer is. Oh, there we go. Oh, okay. Andrew, if you stay where you are, I will never know what the time is. Well, let's read it now, and then we're going to get into it, because I honestly, I, I can't encourage you enough what we're going to talk about this morning uh, this, it's simple it's really easy and and you should be able to pick it up uh and I don't say that as like oh the pressure's on I actually mean it um 
But it should, if it hasn't already, it's going gonna, it's gonna to completely turn your world upside down. And this is it. Let's read it. When the, so Acts 2, 1 to 8. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5 says, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of us, or so each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, not all these men who are speaking Galileans. And how is it that they, that we hear and each of us in our own native language understand? Acts 2, we're going to pick up the story, I'm just moving along quicker. Verse 36, 42, it says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is Peter speaking. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what happens here is that We have these men, and my first point that I really want you to understand, we have these men and these followers, they're in the upper room, and they're not the men you're thinking of. Like, they're they're afraid. They're not fully, like, empowered, like, know what they're doing. They're still lost in the codex of Christ. They're like, well, not sure exactly how this works, and we're in this upper room, and And previously, they've all been to, sort of proven to be men of fear. They like run away from things. I, and I don't judge them for that because we all probably would have. If you really think about the image that was going on, what was taking place, I don't think any one of us would have been like, yeah, I'm sticking around for this. <laughs> so the first thing that Pentecost Sunday really reminds us, makes us to sort of think about is how does men like this go from fearful to faith-filled? What took place? See, Jesus made some alarming statements that would have shook all of us to the core when he was uh, right next to his disciples ministering. See, have you ever had a friend that would constantly speak through premonitions? Have you ever thought about that? Like a lot of Jesus' comments would have just felt like premonitions to his disciples. You don't believe me? Think about this. Luke 13, 33. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Matthew 16, 21. For, the time, for that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Like, huh? What? You're like, you're the son of God. I'm... Jesus talking premonition again. Matthew 17, 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Okay. 
Mark 8.31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and thereafter three days rise again. Like, I only picked a handful. There's lots. But Jesus would speak in premonition. But I say premonition. It wasn't premonition for him. He knew what was going to happen. But if you imagine the way he was talking, and we know that the disciples sort of treat it like a premonition, or they treat it as like something that there must be more to it than just what he's saying, because the way that they respond each time, and even the way they respond when Jesus gets captured, is like they don't seem to have paid any attention that he gave them really clear insights about what was going to happen. Look, if we look at Mark 8, 31, 33, it says this, And he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and three days later rise again. And he said this plainly. That's what the Word of God says. He said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's what the Bible says. Can you imagine that? Just, hey, Jesus. I've got this, guys. Jesus, come here. You've been talking premonitions and all this. That's crazy stuff, man. It's crazy stuff. You're the son of God. It's never going to happen. I'm going to be here with you always. It's going to be good. And this is what Jesus says to him. Get behind me, Satan. Feed him, Jesus. Get him. Get behind me, Satan. I love what Jesus says. He doesn't just leave it there. I would have, but Jesus doesn't. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's rebuke was based in fear. Peter's rebuke was based in what? How does this affect me? See, Jesus is the main character, he's the star. Peter doesn't get this at the moment, how it's all going to play out. See, Jesus would say really revolutionary things because after this takes place with with Peter, Jesus goes on to teach. He says, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life uh, would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? (laughs) This is actually what Jesus teaches straight after feeding Peter. The disciples didn't get it. They're fear-filled, not faith-filled. Fear-filled. They don't get it. Then Jesus gets crucified. And that's really, that they, they get dispersed at that moment. And then Jesus comes back, he's raised, and he, he ministers for that time on earth with them. But the Bible never says, like he restores them, but it never says that he deals with that key issue of you can't do this in your own strength. What he does say to them is that you need to wait for the empowerment. Isn't that interesting? Because these men before Pentecost, they're hiding from the public for fear of what would happen to them, just like it happened to Jesus. They're hiding up in a room because Jesus said, wait. But they're not necessarily like, okay, that's cool. Let's wait. Let's just chill. Let's have deep conversations. Let's have deep chats. (laughs) To be in that room would to have been amongst men who had believed and seen Christ but were waiting for something that still sounded like one of Jesus' classic premonitions. Right? Like they didn't have an issue with knowing that Jesus was Lord and Saviour. They knew that. They were still trying to figure out how are they, in their weakness, meant to do what he said they were going to do. 
See, these are the, they're still the same guys. After Pentecost, these frightened men suddenly became miraculously equipped and empowered to carry on the ministry Jesus had begun. In the very city, Jesus was put to death. Pentecost Sunday conveniently changes everything. Something that I said before, we as believers need to actually empower our life with understanding. See, Peter preached his first sermon about Jesus in Acts 2. This is the same Peter who 53 days earlier said, I never knew him. It's the same Peter who 53 days earlier said, I have nothing to to, to do with Jesus when he was asked by different people. He's like, no, I'm not a follower. Yet Peter on the day of Pentecost stood before the same crowd he once feared and boldly declared the gospel of Jesus Christ. What happened that took these men that were filled with fear and filled them with faith and power? Something took place. We always preach this. The first church ever to exist, the early church, was a Pentecostal church. A spirit-filled Holy Spirit guided, directed, empowered church. Now, I know that Pentecostal as a denomination has only been around for like 120 years, and there's like 1,900 years prior to our official denomination. But at the end of the day, what I'm saying is, is that Pentecostal, spirit-filled living churches was the OG. See, Peter declared in no certain terms, so no uncertain terms, The man that they had offered to be crucified was in fact the Son of God. See, Peter went from being frightened to being fearless. Peter went from being a coward to being courageous. He went from denying and rejecting Jesus to defending and rejoicing in Him. What happened? What changed Peter? What, What all of a sudden in chapter 17 then started to say, these are the men who are turning the world upside down. What changed in them? See, I look at our world today and too many believers are like, man, it's rough out there. No one wants to be friends with Christians. Everyone's hostile towards Christians. Come on, can I tell you the church was born into hostility. It was born into a dark place. See, the church was never meant to be comfortable. Church was never meant to be convenient. See, the Holy Spirit arrived to a bunch of apostles or would-be apostles hiding in an upper room waiting in obedience. It wasn't comfortable up there. It wasn't convenient. Pentecost marks the outpouring of the Holy Spirit by which human beings are equipped to do the work of God. You are equipped through the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you this morning, you do not qualify you. Your education doesn't qualify you, though it can help you. See, your understanding of Scripture is really important and paramount. But without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you won't be as effective as you've called to be. See, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit wasn't just for fun. It's fundamental. We must have it. See, Pentecostal spirit-filled churches, what I love about us is that we've gone back to the beginning and we said we can't do this without the Holy Spirit. He has a place. He has a purpose in our life. Actually, He is the one that directs. He is the one that guides. He is the one that fuels or feeds of the fuel of Christ in our life. I want you to consider these three events. If Christmas marks the birth of Jesus, then Pentecost marks the birth of His church. 
If, uh, you know, if Easter marks the day Jesus was raised from the dead, then Pentecost, it marks the day when the message about Jesus began to make its way to all people, to all places. See, if we as the church do not treat Pentecost the same way as we treat Christmas and Easter, we're in trouble. For instance, I get it. We don't have Pentecost sales. Pentecost trees. Or Pentecost nativity. I have like an upper room that we just have statues of people in. There's no Saint Pentecost carrying around a Pentecost sack filled with gifts of the Spirit. Come on. We should. It sounds awesome. See, if we fail to understand or observe the day of Pentecost, we are robbing ourselves of a powerful perspective. Unless you make room for Pentecost in your understanding of what it means to us as Christians, you will never fully understand your faith. See, in Acts 1, 6-8, Jesus tells the apostles to remain in the city of Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit come upon them. He was not sending them out to evangelize on the basis of their life experience or their understanding of religious laws or teachings. He didn't send them out because they had spent three years in His presence. Instead, He told them to wait for the power, wait for the anointing, wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And once they had the power, they would be ready to go. But until then, wait. I want you to understand this. I'm I'm wrapping it up, I know. Pentecost Sunday is the day we remember when and how the anointing took place. When and how the anointing took place. Our inheritance. Why they're all huddled in a room in Jerusalem behind locked doors and shuttered windows. They hear this rushing shout, this sound. It's like a wind. And these tongues of fire appear and settle on them. And they begin to speak in other languages. That is not the miracle. The miracle is that people from other regions understood it. That's the miracle. The miracle is the representation of the power of God. See, we see in Babel, at the Tower of Babel, God disperses languages. He gets rid of it, causes confusion, and He disunifies humanity because we were evil in that. But on Pentecost, He reunifies the languages so all can hear, so that we can build what? Not our tower, but His church. Not our kingdom, but His kingdom. The miracle was that we could hear and understand what the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords was doing, not in our own tongue, but each and every tongue. Does that not inspire you to go, well, there is no restraint for the Holy Spirit. There's nothing, I said this before, no wall thick enough, no heart hard enough, no mind so smart to be able to evade the Holy Spirit. If we think about Easter and Christmas as events that evolve Jesus as the primary actor. On Christmas, Jesus was born into the world, laid in a manger. There was no disciples present on that event. What do you and I have to do with Christmas? The central story anyway, nothing. It's all about Jesus. On Easter, Jesus was raised from the dead with all power in His hands. Once again, no disciples involved in bringing Him back. We're not involved. It has nothing to do with us in that sense except we celebrate and give thanks to the work that Christ has done on our behalf. Christmas, Jesus is the centre actor. Easter, Jesus is the centre actor. But on Pentecost, all that changes. 
you and I are called from a role of spectator Think about this, to role of central character in God's work. If we don't exhibit, if we don't celebrate, if we don't reflect on Pentecost Sunday, all we're saying is, Jesus, you do the work. Jesus, you get raised, but I'm just going to watch. I'm just going to stand by and let you do everything. But Pentecost says, Jesus said, that's not enough. I called you by name. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit as a gift from the Father so that you would be the central character. Where? In your home, mom. In your home, dad. Where? In your school students. Where? in the universities, in the coffee shops, employers to your employees. You are, you are the Pentecost moment. You will speak and they will understand. We're so afraid of talking. We're so afraid of saying anything. But the Bible says, if you have the courage of Peter to speak out, to begin to evangelize, Holy Spirit, have your way right now. Then when you thought it was inconceivable, where people would be hostile, where people wouldn't understand your heart, the Holy Spirit makes a way. The Holy Spirit opens doors. The Holy Spirit Spirit begins to lead and guide and direct. We're not called to be dead, frozen Christians. We are empowered. Pentecost Sunday is the day the church was born, not for our works, but His works. Church, you got to get excited this morning. We're going to go back into worship. But if COVID has done anything, let's treat COVID, honestly, Avant Life Church, let's treat COVID as our upper room moment. We've waited. We've been patient. We've been wondering what God's going to do next. We're wondering what the church is going to look like. Let's not describe that for Him. Let's let the indescribable begin to do the painting through us, begin to do the artwork through us. Let's begin to ask, well, God, we know that we're not going to have another lighting of the flame in relation to your church. That's been established. Foundations laid, and we thank you for it. But if COVID is our upper room, moment for this generation church why don't we right now in this moment say we make room for you we remove distractions because he wants to take you who were once filled with fear the left media they hate the church yeah they do they hate a lot of things oh well we need Trump back no we need Jesus world needs Jesus doesn't need another politician, doesn't need another philanthropist, doesn't need another corporate CEO telling us how to live morally. All these guys are corrupt. We are. What we need right now is the church to revisit its roots of Pentecost and remember that Pentecost to us is a creed. We have been filled by the Holy Spirit because a price was paid in Jesus Christ. Why? Because a loving Father sent His Son. We're going to learn about this, but right now in this moment, church, let's pray. Let's pray the fear away. Let's worship the fear away. Let's say, Holy Spirit, would you empower us? Because what you know is not enough. Church, what you understand and experience is not enough. You need, I need, we need the Holy Spirit to do the work in and through us. Come on, let's worship together. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.